BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 17 of The Seawolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Seawolf by Jack London Chapter 17 Strange to say, in spite of the general foreboding, nothing of a special moment happened on the ghost. We ran on to the north and west till we raised the coast of Japan and picked up with the great seal herd. Coming from no man knew where in the illimitable Pacific, it was traveling north on its annual migration to the rookeries of Bering Sea. And north we traveled with it ravaging and destroying, flinging the naked carcasses to the shark, and salting down the skins so that they might later adorn the fair shoulders of the women of the cities. It was wanton slaughter, and all for women's sake. No man ate of the seal meat or the oil. After a good day's killing, I have seen our decks covered with hides and bodies, slippery with fat and blood, the scuppers running red, masts, ropes, and rails spattered with the sanguinary color, and the men like butchers plying their trade, naked and red of arm and hand, hard at work with ripping and flensing knives, removing the skins from the pretty sea creatures they had killed. It was my task to tally the pelts as they came aboard from the boats, to oversee the skinning and afterward the cleansing of the decks and bringing things shipshape again. It was not pleasant work. My soul and my stomach revolted at it. And yet, in a way, this handling and directing of many men was good for me. It developed what little executive ability I possessed, and I was aware of a toughening or hardening which I was undergoing, and which could not be anything but wholesome for Sissy Van Waden. One thing I was beginning to feel, and that was that I could never again be quite the same man I had been. While my hope and faith in human life still survived Wolf Larsen's destructive criticism, he had, nevertheless, been a cause of change in minor matters. He had opened up for me the world of the real, of which I had known practically nothing, and from which I had always shrunk. I had learned to look more closely at life as it was lived, to recognize that there were such things as facts in the world, to emerge from the realm of mind and idea, and to place certain values on the concrete and objective phases of existence. I saw more of Wolf Larsen than ever when we had gained the grounds. For when the weather was fair, and we were in the midst of the herd, all hands were away in the boats, and left on board were only he and I, and Thomas Mugridge, who did not count. But there was no play about it. 
the six boats spreading out fanwise from the schooner until the first weather boat and the last lee boat were anywhere from ten to twenty miles apart cruised along a straight course over the sea till nightfall or bad weather drove them in it was our duty to sail the ghost well to leeward of the last lee boat so that all the boats should have fair wind to run for us in case of squalls or threatening weather it is no slight matter for two men particularly when a stiff wind has sprung up to handle a vessel like the ghost steering keeping lookout for the boats and setting or taking in sail so it devolved upon me to learn and learn quickly steering i picked up easily but running aloft to the cross tees and swinging my whole weight by my arms when i left the ratlines and climbed still higher was more difficult this too i learned and quickly for i felt somehow a wild desire to vindicate myself in wolf larsen's eyes to prove my right to live in ways other than of the mind nay the time came when i took joy in the run of the masthead and in the clinging on by my legs at the precarious height while i swept the sea with glasses in search of the boats i remember one beautiful day when the boats left early and the reports of the hunters guns grew dim and distant and died away as they scattered far and wide over the sea there was just the faintest wind from the westward but it breathed its last by the time we managed to get to leeward of the last lee boat one by one i was at the masthead and saw the six boats disappeared over the bulge of the earth as they followed the seal into the west we lay scarcely rolling on the placid sea unable to follow wolf larsen was apprehensive the barometer was down and the sky to the east did not please him he studied it with unceasing vigilance here she comes out of there he said hard and snappy putting us to windward of the boats it's likely there'll be empty bunks in steerage and forecastle by eleven o'clock the sea had become glass by midday though we were well up in the northerly latitudes the heat was sickening there was no freshness in the air it was sultry and oppressive reminding me of what the old californians term earthquake weather there was something ominous about it and in intangible ways one was made to feel that the worst was about to come slowly the whole eastern sky filled with clouds that overtowered us like some black sierra of the infernal regions so clearly could one see canyon gorge and precipice and the shadows that lie therein that one looked unconsciously for the white surf line and the bellowing caverns where the sea charges on the land and still we rocked gently and there was no wind it's no square wolf larsen said old mother nature's going to get up on her hind legs and howl for all that's in her and it'll keep us jumping hump to pull through with half our boats you'd better run up and loosen the topsails but if it is going to howl and there are only two of us i asked a note of protest in my voice why we've got to make the best of the first of it and run down to our boats before our canvas is ripped out of us after that i don't give a rap what happens the sticks will stand it and you and i will have to though we've plenty cut out for us still the calm continued we ate dinner a hurried and anxious meal for me with eighteen men abroad on the sea and beyond the bulge of the earth and with that heaven-rolling mountain range of clouds moving slowly down upon us wolf larsen did not seem affected however 
though i noticed when we returned to the deck a slight twitching of the nostrils a perceptible quickness of movement his face was stern the lines of it had grown hard and yet in his eyes blue clear blue this day there was a strange brilliancy a bright scintillating light it struck me that he was joyous in a ferocious sort of way that he was glad there was an impending struggle that he was thrilled and upborne with knowledge that one of the great moments of living when the tide of life surges up in flood was upon him once and unwitting that he did so or that i saw he laughed aloud mockingly and defiantly at the advancing storm i see him yet standing there like a pygmy out of the arabian nights before the huge front of some malignant genie he was daring destiny and he was unafraid he walked to the galley cookie by the time you've finished pots and pans you'll be wanted on deck stand ready for a call hump he said becoming cognizant of the fascinated gaze i bent upon him this beats whiskey and is where your omar misses i think he only half lived after all the western half of the sky had by now grown murky the sun had dimmed and faded out of sight it was two in the afternoon and a ghostly twilight shot through by wandering purplish lights had descended upon us in this purplish light wolf larsen's face glowed and glowed and to my excited fancy he appeared encircled by a halo we lay in the midst of an unearthly quiet while all about us were signs and omens of oncoming sound and movement the sultry heat had become unendurable the sweat was standing on my forehead and i could feel it trickling down my nose i felt as though i should faint and reached out to the rail for support and then just then the faintest possible whisper of air passed by it was from the east and like a whisper it came and went the drooping canvas was not stirred and yet my face had felt the air and been cooled cookie wolf larsen called in a low voice thomas mugridge turned a pitiable scared face let go that four-broom tackle and pass it across and when she's willing let go the sheet and come in snug with the tackle and if you make a mess of it it will be the last you ever make understand mr van waden stand by to pass the head sails over then jump for the topsails and spread them quick as god'll let you the quicker you do it the easier you'll find it as for cookie if he isn't lively bat him between the eyes i was aware of the compliment and pleased in that no threat had accompanied my instructions we were lying head to northwest and it was his intention to jibe over all with the first puff we'll have the breeze on our quarter he explained to me by the last guns the boats were bearing away slightly to the southward he turned and walked aft to the wheel i went forward and took my station at the jibs another whisper of wind and another passed by the canvas flapped lazily thank god she's not coming all of a bunch mr van wyden was the cockney's fervent ejaculation and i was indeed thankful for i had by this time learned enough to know with all our canvas spread what disaster in such event awaited us 
the whispers of wind became puffs the sails filled the ghost moved wolf larsen put the wheel hard up to port and we began to pay off the wind was now dead astern muttering and puffing stronger and stronger and my head sails were pounding lustily i did not see what went on elsewhere though i felt the sudden surge and heel of the schooner as the wind pressures changed to the jibing of the fore and mainsails my hands were full with the flying jib jib and staysail and by the time this part of my task was accomplished the ghost was leaping into the southwest the wind on her quarter and all her sheets to starboard without pausing for breath though my heart was beating like a trip hammer from my exertions i sprang to the topsails and before the wind had become too strong we had them firmly set and were coiling down then i went aft for orders wolf larsen nodded approval and relinquished the wheel to me the wind was strengthening steadily and the sea rising for an hour i steered each moment becoming more difficult i had not the experience to steer at the gate we were going on a quartering course now take a run up with the glasses and raise some of the boats we've made at least ten knots and we're going twelve or thirteen now the old girl knows how to walk i contested myself with the four cross trees some seventy feet above the deck as i searched the vacant stretch of water before me i comprehended thoroughly the need for haste if we were to recover any of our men indeed as i gazed at the heavy sea through which we were running i doubted that there was a boat afloat it did not seem possible that such frail craft could survive such stress of wind and water i could not feel the full force of the wind for we were running with it but from my lofty perch i looked down as though outside the ghost and apart from her and saw the shape of her outlined sharply against the foaming sea as she tore along instinct with life sometimes she would lift and send across some great wave burying her starboard rail from view and covering her deck to the hatches with the boiling ocean at such moments starting from a windward roll i would go flying through the air with a dizzying swiftness as though i clung to the end of a huge inverted pendulum the arc of which between the greater rolls must have been seventy feet or more once the terror of this giddy sweep overpowered me and for a while i clung on hand and foot weak and trembling unable to search the sea for the missing boats or to behold aught of the sea but that which roared beneath and strove to overwhelm the ghosts but the thought of the men in the midst of it steadied me and in my quest for them i forgot myself for an hour i saw nothing but the naked desolate sea and then where a vagrant shaft of sunlight struck the ocean and turned its surface to wrathful silver i caught a small black speck thrust skyward for an instant and swallowed up i waited patiently again the tiny point of light projected itself through the wrathful blaze a couple of points off our port bow i did not attempt to shout but communicated the news to wolf larsen by waving my arm he changed the course and i signaled affirmation when the speck showed dead ahead it grew larger and so swiftly that for the first time i fully appreciated the speed of our flight 
Wolf Larsen motioned for me to come down, and when I stood beside him at the wheel, gave me instructions for heaving to. "'Expect all hell to break loose,' he cautioned me. "'But don't mind it. Yours is to do your own work and to have Cookie stand by the foresheet.' I managed to make my way forward, but there was little choice of sides, for the weather rail seemed buried as often as the lee. Having instructed Thomas Muggridge as to what he was to do, I clambered into the fore-rigging a few feet. The boat was now very close, and I could make out plainly that it was lying head to wind and sea, and dragging on its mast and sail, which had been thrown overboard and made to serve as a sea anchor. The three men were bailing. Each rolling mountain whelmed them from view, and I would wait with sickening anxiety, fearing that they would never appear again. Then, and with black suddenness, the boat would shoot clear through the foaming crest, bow pointed to the sky, and the whole length of her bottom showing, wet and dark, till she seemed on end. There would be a fleeting glimpse of the three men flinging water in frantic haste, when she would topple over and fall into the yawning valley, bow down, and showing her full length inside to the stern, upreared almost directly above the bow. Each time that she reappeared was a miracle. The ghost suddenly changed her course, keeping away, and it came to me with a shock that Wolf Larsen was giving up the rescue as impossible. Then I realized that he was preparing to heave too, and dropped to the deck to be in readiness. We were now dead before the wind, the boat far away and abreast of us. I felt an abrupt easing of the schooner a loss for the moment of all strain and pressure, coupled with a swift acceleration of speed. She was rushing around on her heel into the wind. As she arrived at right angles to the sea, the full force of the wind, from which we had hitherto run away, caught us. I was unfortunately and ignorantly facing it. It stood up against me like a wall, filling my lungs with air, which I could not expel and as I choked and strangled, and as the ghost wallowed for an instant, broadside on, and rolling straight over and far into the wind, I beheld a huge sea rise far above my head. I turned aside, caught my breath, and looked again. The wave overtopped the ghost, and I gazed sheer up and into it. A shaft of sunlight smote the overcurl, and I caught a glimpse of translucent rushing green, backed by a milky smother of foam. Then it descended. Pandemonium broke loose. Everything happened at once. I was struck a crushing, stunning blow, nowhere in particular and yet everywhere. My hold had been broken loose, and I was under water, and the thought passed through my mind that this was the terrible thing of which I had heard, the being swept in the trough of the sea. My body struck and pounded as it was dashed helplessly along, and turned over and over, and when I could hold my breath no longer, I breathed the stinging salt water into my lungs. But through it all I clung to the one idea. I must get the jib backed over to windward. I had no fear of death. I had no doubt that I should come through somehow. And as this idea of fulfilling Wolf Larsen's order persisted in my day's consciousness, I seemed to see him standing at the wheel, in the midst of the wild welter, 
pitting his will against the will of the storm and defying it. I brought up violently against what I took to be the rail, breathed and breathed the sweet air again. I tried to rise, but struck my head, and was knocked back on hands and knees. By some freak of the waters I had been swept clear under the forecastle head and into the eyes. As I scrambled out on all fours, I passed over the body of Thomas Mugridge, who lay in a groaning heap. There was no time to investigate. I must get the jib backed over. When I emerged on deck, it seemed that the end of everything had come. On all sides there was a rending and crashing of wood and steel and canvas. The ghost was being wrenched and torn to fragments. The foresail and foretopsail, emptied of the wind by the maneuver, and with no wind to bring in the sheet in time, were thundering into ribbons, the heavy boom threshing and splintering from rail to rail. The air was thick with flying wreckage, detached ropes and stays were hissing and coiling like snakes, and down through it all crashed the gaff of the foresail. The spar could not have missed me by many inches while it spurred me to action. Perhaps the situation was not hopeless. I remembered Wolf Larsen's caution. He had expected all hell to break loose, and here it was. And where was he? I caught sight of him toiling at the main sheet, heaving it in and flat with his tremendous muscles, the stern of the schooner lifted high in the air, and his body outlined against a white surge of sea sweeping past. All this and more, a whole world of chaos and wreck, in possibly fifteen seconds I had seen and heard and grasped. I did not stop to see what had become of the small boat, but sprang to the jib-sheet. The jib itself was beginning to slap, partially filling and emptying with sharp reports, but with the turn of the sheet and the application of my whole strength each time it slapped, I slowly backed it. This I know, I did my best. I pulled till I burst open the ends of all my fingers, and while I pulled, the flying jib and staysail split their cloths apart and thundered into nothingness. Still I pulled, holding what I gained each time with a double turn until the next slap gave me more. Then the sheet gave with greater ease, and Wolf Larsen was beside me, heaving in alone while I was busy taking up the slack. Make fast, he shouted, and come on. As I followed him, I noticed that, in spite of rack and ruin, a rough order obtained. The ghost was hove to. She was still in working order, and she was still working. Though the rest of her sails were gone, the jib back to windward and the mainsail, hauled down flat, were themselves holding, and holding her bow to the furious sea as well. I looked for the boat, and, while Wolf Larsen cleared the boat-tackles, saw it lift to leeward on a big sea and not a score of feet away. And so nicely had he made his calculation, we drifted fairly down upon it, so that nothing remained to do but hook the tackles to either end and hoist it aboard. But this was not done so easily as it is written. In the bow was Kerfoot, Oofty Oofty in the stern, and Kelly amidships. As we drifted closer, the boat would rise on a wave while we sank in the trough, till almost straight above me I could see the heads of the three men craned overside and looking down. Then, the next moment, we would lift and soar upward, while they sank far down beneath us. 
it seemed incredible that the next surge should not crush the ghost down upon the tiny eggshell but at the right moment i passed the tackle to the kanaka while wolf larsen did the same thing forward to kerfoot both tackles were hooked in a trice and the three men deftly timing the roll made a simultaneous leap aboard the schooner as the ghost rolled her side out of water the boat was lifted snugly against her and before the return roll came we had heaved it in over the side and turned it bottom up on the deck i noticed blood spouting from kerfoot's left hand in some way the third finger had been crushed to a pulp but he gave no sign of pain and with his single right hand helped us lash the boat in its place stand by to let that jib over you ufty wolf larsen commanded the very second we had finished with the boat kelly come aft and slack off the main sheet you kerfoot go forward and see what's become of cookie mr van waden run aloft again and cut away any stray stuff on your way and having commanded he went aft with his peculiar tigerish leaps to the wheel while i toiled up the fore shrouds the ghost slowly paid off this time as we went into the trough of the sea and were swept there were no sails to carry away and halfway to the cross trees and flattened against the rigging by the full force of the wind so that it would have been impossible for me to have fallen the ghost almost on her beam ends and the mast parallel with the water i looked not down but at almost right angles from the perpendicular to the deck of the ghost but i saw not the deck but where the deck should have been for it was buried beneath a wild tumbling of water out of this water i could see the two masts rising and that was all the ghost for the moment was buried beneath the sea as she squared off more and more escaping from the side pressure she righted herself and broke her deck like a whale's back through the ocean's surface then we raced and wildly across the wild sea the while i hung like a fly in the cross trees and searched for the other boats in half an hour i sighted the second one swamped and bottom up to which were desperately clinging jack horner fat lewis and johnson this time i remained aloft and wolf larsen succeeded in heaving too without being swept as before we drifted down upon it tackles were made fast and lines flung to the men who scrambled aboard like monkeys the boat itself was crushed and splintered against the schooner's side as it came inboard but the wreck was securely lashed for it could be patched and made whole again once more the ghost bore away before the storm this time so submerging herself that for some seconds i thought she would never reappear even the wheel quite a deal higher than the waist was covered and swept again and again at such moments i felt strangely alone with god alone with him in watching the chaos of his wrath and then the wheel would reappear and wolf larsen's broad shoulders his hands gripping the spokes and holding the schooner to the course of his will himself an earth god dominating the storm flinging its descending waters from him and riding it to his own ends and oh the marvel of it the marvel of it that tiny men should live and breathe and work and drive so frail a contrivance of wood and cloth through so tremendous an elemental strife as before 
the ghost swung out of the trough, lifting her deck again out of the sea, and dashed before the howling blast. It was now half-past five, and half an hour later, when the last of the day lost itself in a dim and furious twilight, I sighted a third boat. It was bottom-up, and there was no sign of its crew. Wolf Larsen repeated his maneuver, holding off and then rounding up to windward and drifting down upon it, but this time he missed by forty feet, the boat passing astern. "'Number four boat!' Ufti Ufti cried, his keen eyes reading its number in the one second when it lifted clear of the foam and upside down. It was Henderson's boat, and with him had been lost Holyoke and Williams, another of the deep-water crowd lost they indubitably were but the boat remained and wolf larsen made one more reckless effort to recover it i had come down to the deck and i saw horner and kerfoot vainly protest against the attempt by god i'll not be robbed of my boat by any storm that ever blew out of hell he shouted and though we four stood with our heads together that we might hear, his voice seemed faint and far, as though removed from us an immense distance. Mr. Van Wayden, he cried, and I heard through the tumult, as one might hear a whisper, Stand by that jib with Johnson and Ufti. The rest of you, tail aft to the main sheet. Lively now, or I'll sail you all into kingdom come. Understand? And when he put the wheel hard over and the ghost bow swung off, there was nothing for the hunters to do but obey and make the best of a risky chance. How great the risk I realized when I was once more buried beneath the pounding seas and clinging for life to the pinrail at the foot of the foremast. My fingers were torn loose, and I swept across the side and over the side into the sea. I could not swim, but before I could sink, I was swept back again. A strong hand gripped me, and when the ghost finally emerged, I found that I owed my life to Johnson. I saw him looking anxiously about him, and noted that Kelly, who had come forward at the last moment, was missing. This time, having missed the boat, and not being in the same position as in the previous instances, Wolf Larsen was compelled to resort to a different maneuver running off before the wind with everything to starboard he came about and returned close-hauled on the port tack grand johnson shouted in my ear as we successfully came through the attendant deluge and i knew he referred not to wolf larsen's seamanship but to the performance of the ghost herself it was now so dark that there was no sign of the boat but Wolf Larsen held back through the frightful turmoil, as if guided by unerring instinct. This time, though we were continually half-buried, there was no trough in which to be swept, and we drifted squarely down upon the upturned boat, badly smashing it as it was heaved inboard. Two hours of terrible work followed, in which all hands of us, two hunters, three sailors, Wolf Larsen and I, reefed first one and then the other the jib and mainsail hove to under this short canvas our decks were comparatively free of water while the ghost bobbed and ducked amongst the combers like a cork i had burst open the ends of my fingers at the very first and during the reefing i had worked with tears of pain running down my cheeks and when all was done 
I gave up like a woman, and rolled upon the deck in the agony of exhaustion. In the meantime, Thomas Mugridge, like a drowned rat, was being dragged out from under the forecastle head, where he had cravenly ensconced himself. I saw him pulled aft to the cabin, and noted with a shock of surprise that the galley had disappeared. A clean space of deck showed where it had stood. In the cabin I found all hands assembled, sailors as well, and while coffee was being cooked over the small stove, we drank whiskey and crunched hardtack. Never in my life had food been so welcome, and never had hot coffee tasted so good. So violently did the ghost pitch and toss and tumble that it was impossible for even the sailors to move about without holding on, and several times, after a cry of, now she takes off we were heaped upon the wall of the port cabins as though it had been the deck to hell with the lookout i heard wolf larsen say when we had eaten and drunk our fill there's nothing can be done on deck if anything's going to run us down we couldn't get out of its way turn in all hands get some sleep the sailors slipped forward setting the side lights as they went while the two hunters remained to sleep in the cabin it not being deemed advisable to open the slide to the steerage companionway. Wolf Larsen and I, between us, cut off Kerfoot's crushed finger and sewed up the stump. Mugridge, who during all the time he had been compelled to cook and serve coffee and keep the fire going, had complained of internal pains, now swore that he had a broken rib or two. On examination, we found that he had three but his case was deferred to next day, principally for the reason that I did not know anything about broken ribs, and would first have to read it up. "'I don't think it was worth it,' I said to Wolf Larsen. "'A broken boat for Kelly's life?' "'That Kelly didn't amount to much,' was the reply. "'Good night.' After all that had passed, suffering intolerable anguish in my finger-ends, and with three boats missing, to say nothing of the wild capers the ghost was cutting, I should have thought it impossible to sleep. But my eyes must have closed the instant my head touched the pillow, and in utter exhaustion I slept throughout the night, the while the ghost, lonely and undirected, fought her way through the storm. End of chapter 17「The next day, while the storm was blowing itself out, Wolf Larsen and I crammed anatomy and surgery, and set Mugridge's ribs. Then, when the storm broke, Wolf Larsen cruised back and forth over that portion of the ocean where we had encountered it, and somewhat more to the westward, while the boats were being repaired and new sails made and bent. Sealing schooner after sealing schooner we sighted and boarded, most of which were in search of lost boats, and most of which were carrying boats and crews they had picked up and which did not belong to them for the thick of the fleet had been to the westward of us, and the boats, scattered far and wide, had headed in mad flight for the nearest refuge. Two of our boats, with all men safe, we took off the Cisco, and to Wolf Larsen's huge delight, and my own grief, we culled smoke, with Nielsen and Leach, 
from the San Diego, so that at the end of five days we found ourselves short but four men, Henderson, Holyoke, Williams, and Kelly, and were once more hunting on the flanks of the herd. As we followed it north, we began to encounter the dreaded sea fogs. Day after day the boats lowered and were swallowed up almost ere they touched the water, while we on board pumped the horn at regular intervals and every fifteen minutes fired the bomb gun. Boats were continually being lost and found, it being the custom for a boat to hunt on lay with whatever schooner picked it up until such time it was recovered by its own schooner. But Wolf Larsen, as was to be expected, being a boat short, took possession of the first stray one and compelled its men to hunt with the ghost, not permitting them to return to their own schooner when we sighted it. I remember how he forced the hunter and his two men below, a rifle at their breasts, when their captain passed by at biscuit toss and held us for information. Thomas Smugridge, so strangely and pertinaciously clinging to life, was soon limping about again, and performing his double duties of cook and cabin boy. Johnson and Leach were bullied and beaten as much as ever, and they looked for their lives to end with the end of the hunting season, while the rest of the crew lived the lives of dogs, and were worked like dogs by their pitiless master. As for Wolf Larsen and myself, we got along fairly well, though I could not quite rid myself of the idea that right conduct for me lay in killing him. He fascinated me immeasurably, and I feared him immeasurably, and yet I could not imagine him lying prone in death. There was an endurance as of perpetual youth about him, which rose up and forbade the picture. I could see him only as living always, and dominating always, fighting and destroying, himself surviving. One diversion of his, when we were in the midst of the herd, and the sea was too rough to lower the boats, was to lower the two boat-pullers and a steerer, and go out himself. He was a good shot, too, and brought many a skin aboard under what the hunters termed impossible hunting conditions. It seemed the breath of his nostrils, this carrying his life in his hands, and struggling for it against tremendous odds. I was learning more and more seamanship, and one clear day, a thing we rarely encountered now, I had the satisfaction of running and handling the ghost and picking up the boats myself. Wolf Larsen had been smitten with one of his headaches, and I stood at the wheel from morning until evening, sailing across the ocean after the last lee-boat, and heaving to, and picking it and the other five up, without command or suggestion from him. Gales we encountered now and again, for it was a raw and stormy region, and in the middle of June, a typhoon most memorable to me, and most important because of the changes wrought through it upon my future. We must have been caught nearly at the center of this circular storm, and Wolf Larsen ran out of it and to the southward, first under a double-reefed jib, and finally under bare poles. Never had I imagined so great a sea. The seas previously encountered were as ripples compared with these, which ran a half-mile from crest to crest, and which upreared, I am confident, above our masthead. So great was it that Wolf Larsen himself did not dare to heave to, though he was being driven far to the southward and out of the seal herd. 
We must have been well in the path of the trans-Pacific steamships when the typhoon moderated, and here, to the surprise of the hunters, we found ourselves in the midst of seals. A second herd, or sort of rear guard, they declared, and a most unusual thing. But it was boats over, the boom-boom of guns, and the pitiful slaughter through the long day. It was at this time that I was approached by Leech. I had just finished tallying the skins of the last boat aboard, when he came to my side in the darkness, and said in a low tone, "'Can you tell me, Mr. Van Waden, how far we are off the coast?' and what the bearings of Yokohama are. My heart leaped with gladness, for I knew what he had in mind, and I gave him the bearings, west-northwest and five hundred miles away. Thank you, sir, was all he said as he slipped back into the darkness. Next morning, number three boat and Johnson and Leach were missing. The water breakers and grub boxes from all the other boats were likewise missing as were the beds and sea-bags of the two men. Wolf Larsen was furious. He set sail and bore away into the west-northwest, two hunters constantly at the mastheads and sweeping the sea with glasses, himself pacing the deck like an angry lion. He knew too well my sympathy for the runaways to send me aloft as lookout. The wind was fair but fitful and it was like looking for a needle in a haystack to raise that tiny boat out of the blue immensity. But he put the ghost through her best paces, so as to get between the deserters and the land. This accomplished, he cruised back and forth across what he knew must be their course. On the morning of the third day, shortly after eight bells, a cry that the boat was sighted came down from smoke at the masthead. All hands lined the rail. A snappy breeze was blowing from the west with the promise of more wind behind it, and there, to leeward, in the troubled silver of the rising sun, appeared and disappeared a black speck. We squared away and ran for it. My heart was as lead. I felt myself turning sick in anticipation, and as I looked at the gleam of triumph in Wolf Larsen's eyes, his form swam before me and I felt almost irresistibly impelled to fling myself upon him. So unnerved was I by the thought of impending violence to Leach and Johnson that my reason must have left me. I know that I slipped down into the steerage in a daze, and that I was just beginning the ascent to the deck, a loaded shotgun in my hands, when I heard the startled cry, "'There's five men in that boat!' I supported myself in the companionway weak and trembling, while the observation was being verified by the remarks of the rest of the men. Then my knees gave from under me, and I sank down, myself again, but overcome by shock at knowledge of what I had so nearly done. Also, I was very thankful as I put the gun away and slipped back on deck. No one had remarked my absence. The boat was near enough for us to make out that it was larger than any sealing boat and built on different lines. As we drew closer, the sail was taken in, and the mass unstepped. Oars were shipped, and its occupants waited for us to heave to and take them aboard. Smoke, who had descended to the deck and was now standing by my side, began to chuckle in a significant way. <laughs> Talk of a mess, he giggled. What's wrong? I demanded. Again, he chuckled. <laughs> don't you see there in the stern sheets on the bottom 
May I never shoot a seal again if that ain't a woman. I looked closely, but was not sure until exclamations broke out on all sides. The boat contained four men, and its fifth occupant was certainly a woman. We were agog with excitement, all except Wolf Larsen, who was too evidently disappointed in that it was not his own boat with the two victims of his malice. We ran down the flying jib, hauled the jib sheets to windward and the main sheet flat, and came up into the wind. The oars struck the water, and with a few strokes the boat was alongside. I now caught my first fair glimpse of the woman. She was wrapped in a long ulster, for the morning was raw, and I could see nothing but her face and a mass of light brown hair escaping from under the seaman's cap on her head. The eyes were large and brown and lustrous, the mouth sweet and sensitive, and the face itself a delicate oval, though sun and exposure to briny wind had burnt the face scarlet. She seemed to me like a being from another world. I was aware of a hungry outreaching for her, as of a starving man for bread, but then I had not seen a woman for a very long time. I knew that I was lost in a great wonder almost a stupor. This, then, was a woman, so that I forgot myself and my mate's duties, and took no part in helping the newcomers aboard. For when one of the sailors lifted her into Wolf Larsen's downstretched arms, she looked up into our curious faces and smiled amusedly and sweetly, as only a woman can smile, and as I had seen no one smile for so long that I'd forgotten such smiles existed. Mr. Van Waden! Wolf Larsen's voice brought me sharply back to myself. Will you take the lady below and see to her comfort? Make up that spare port cabin. Put Cookie to work on it. And see what you can do for that face. It's burned badly. He turned brusquely away from us and began to question the new men. The boat was cast adrift, though one of them called it a bloody shame with Yokohama so near. I found myself strangely afraid of this woman I was escorting aft. Also, I was awkward. It seemed to me that I was realizing for the first time what a delicate, fragile creature a woman is, and as I caught her arm to help her down the companion stairs, I was startled by its smallness and softness. Indeed, she was a slender, delicate woman, as women go but to me she was so ethereally slender and delicate that I was quite prepared for her arm to crumble in my grasp. All this, in frankness, to show my first impression, after long denial of women in general, and of Maud Brewster in particular. "'No need to go to any great trouble for me,' she protested when I had seated her in Wolf Larsen's armchair, which I had dragged hastily from his cabin. The men were looking for land at any moment this morning, and the vessel should be in by night, don't you think so? Her simple faith in an immediate future took me aback. How could I explain to her the situation, the strange man who stalked the sea like destiny, all that it had taken me months to learn? But I answered honestly. If it were any other captain except ours, I should say you would be ashore in Yokohama tomorrow. But our captain is a strange man, and I beg of you to be prepared for anything. Understand? For anything. I, I confess, I hardly do understand. She hesitated, a perturbed but not frightened expression in her eyes. 
or is it a misconception of mine that shipwrecked people are always shown every consideration this is such a little thing you know we are so close to land candidly i do not know i strove to reassure her i wished merely to prepare you for the worst if the worst is to come this man this captain is a brute a demon and one can never tell what will be his next fantastic act i was growing excited but she interrupted me with an oh i see and her voice sounded weary to think was patently an effort she was clearly on the verge of physical collapse she asked no further questions and i vouchsafed no remark devoting myself to wolf larsen's command which was to make her comfortable I bustled about in quite housewifely fashion, procuring soothing lotions for her sunburn, raiding Wolf Larsen's private stores for a bottle of port I knew to be there, and directing Thomas Mugridge in the preparation of the spare stateroom. The wind was freshening rapidly, the ghost heeling over more and more, and by the time the stateroom was ready, she was dashing through the water at a lively clip. I had quite forgotten the existence of Leach and Johnson, when suddenly, like a thunderclap, Boat Ho! came down the open companionway. It was Smoke's unmistakable voice, crying from the masthead. I shot a glance at the woman, but she was leaning back in the armchair, her eyes closed, unutterably tired. I doubted that she had heard, and I resolved to prevent her seeing the brutality I knew would follow the capture of the deserters. She was tired. Very good. She should sleep. There were swift commands on deck, a stamping of feet, and a slapping of reef points as the ghost shot into the wind and about on the other tack. As she filled away and heeled, the armchair began to slide across the cabin floor, and I sprang for it just in time to prevent the rescued woman from being spilled out. Her eyes were too heavy to suggest more than a hint of the sleepy surprise that perplexed her as she looked up at me, and she half stumbled, half tottered, as I led her to her cabin. Mugridge grinned insinuatingly in my face as I shoved him out and ordered him back to his galley work and he won his revenge by spreading glowing remarks among the hunters as to what an excellent light is made i was proving myself to be she leaned heavily against me and i do believe that she had fallen asleep again between the armchair and the stateroom this i discovered when she nearly fell into the bunk during a sudden lurch of the schooner she aroused smiled drowsily and was off to sleep again and asleep I left her under a heavy pair of sailor's blankets, her head resting on a pillow I had appropriated from Wolf Larsen's bunk. End of chapter 18「I came on deck to find the ghost heading up close on the port tack, and cutting into windward of a familiar spritsail close-hauled on the same tack ahead of us. All hands were on deck, for they knew that something was to happen when Leach and Johnson were dragged aboard. It was four bells. Lewis came aft to relieve the wheel. There was a dampness in the air, and I noticed he had on his oilskins. 
What are we going to have? I asked him. A healthy young slip of a gare from the breath of it, sir, he answered, with a splatter of rain just to wet our gills, and no more. Too bad we sighted them, I said, as the ghost bow was flung off a point by a large sea, and the boat leaped for a moment past the jibs and into our line of vision. Lewis gave a spoke and temporized. They'd never have made the land, sir, I'm thinking. Think not? I queried. No, sir. Did you feel that? A puff had caught the schooner, and he was forced to put the wheel up rapidly to keep her out of the wind. Tis no egg shell float on this sea an hour come, and it's a stroke of luck for them we're here to pick em up. Wolf Larsen strode aft from amidships, where he had been talking with the rescued men. The cat-like springness in his tread was a little more pronounced than usual, and his eyes were bright and snappy. Three oilers and a fourth engineer, was his greeting. But we'll make sailors out of them, or boat-pullers, at any rate. Now, what of the lady? I know not why, but I was aware of a twinge or pang, like the cut of a knife when he mentioned her. I thought it a certain silly fastidiousness on my part, but it persisted in spite of me, and I merely shrugged my shoulders in answer. Wolf Larsen pursed his lips in a long, quizzical whistle. "'What's her name, then?' he demanded. "'I don't know,' I replied. "'She's asleep. And she was very tired. In fact, I am waiting to hear the news from you. What vessel was it?' "'Mail steamer,' he answered shortly. "'The city of Tokyo, from Frisco.' bound for Yokohama, disabled in that typhoon, old tub, opened up top and bottom like a sieve. They were adrift four days. And you don't know who or what she is, eh? Maid, wife, or widow? Well, well. He shook his head in a bantering way, and regarded me with laughing eyes. Are you? I began. It was on the verge of my tongue to ask if he were going to take the castaways into Yokohama. Am I what? he asked. What do you intend doing with Leach and Johnson? He shook his head. Really, hump, I don't know. You see, with these additions, I have about all the crew I want. And they're about all the escaping they want, I said. Why not give them a change of treatment, take them aboard, and deal gently with them? Whatever they have done, they have been hounded into doing. By me? By you, I answered steadily. And I give you warning, Wolf Larsen, that I may forget love of my own life in the desire to kill you if you go too far in maltreating those poor wretches. Bravo! he cried. You do me proud, Hump. You found your legs with a vengeance. You're quite an individual. You were unfortunate in having your life cast in easy places, but you're developing, and I like you the better for it. His voice and expression changed. His face was serious. Do you believe in promises? He asked. Are they sacred things? Of course, I answered. Then here's a compact, he went on, consummate actor. If I promise not to lay my hands upon Leech, will you promise in turn not to attempt to kill me? Oh, not that I am afraid of you. Not that I am afraid of you, he hastened to add. I could hardly believe my ears. What was coming over the man? Is it a go? He asked impatiently. A go, I answered. His hand went out to mine, and I shook it heartily. I could have sworn I saw the mocking devil 
shine up for a moment in his eyes. We strolled across the poop to the lee side. The boat was close at hand now, and in desperate plight. Johnson was steering, Leach bailing. We overhauled them about two feet to their one. Wolf Larsen motioned Lewis to keep off slightly, and we dashed abreast of the boat, not a score of feet to windward. The ghost blanketed it. The spritsail flapped emptily, and the boat righted to an even keel, causing the two men swiftly to change position. The boat lost headway, and as we lifted on a huge surge, toppled and fell into the trough. It was at this moment that Leach and Johnson looked up into the faces of their shipmates, who lined the rail amidships. There was no greeting. They were as dead men in their comrades' eyes and between them was the gulf that parts the living and the dead. The next instant they were opposite the poop, where stood Wolf Larsen and I. We were falling in the trough, they were rising on the surge. Johnson looked at me, and I could see that his face was worn and haggard. I waved my hand to him, and he answered the greeting, but with a wave that was hopeless and despairing. It was as if he were saying farewell. I did not see into the eyes of Leech, for he was looking at Wolf Larsen, the old and implacable snarl of hatred strong as ever on his face. Then they were gone astern. The spritsail filled with the wind, suddenly careening the frail open craft till it seemed it would surely capsize. A white cap foamed above it and broke across in a snow-white smother. Then the boat emerged half-swamped. Leach flinging the water out, and Johnson clinging to the steering oar, his face white and anxious. Wolf Larsen barked a short laugh in my ear and strode away to the weather side of the poop. I expected him to give orders for the ghost to heave to, but she kept on her course and he made no sign. Lewis stood imperturbably at the wheel, but I noticed the grouped sailors forward turning troubled faces in our direction. Still the ghost tore along till the boat dwindled to a speck, when Wolf Larsen's voice rang out in command, and he went about on a starboard tack. Back we held, two miles and more to windward of the struggling cockle-shell, when the flying jib was run down and the schooner hove to. The sealing boats are not made for windward work. Their hope lies in keeping a weather position, so that they may run before the wind for the schooner when it breezes up. But in all that wild waste there was no refuge for Leach and Johnson save on the ghost, and they resolutely began the windward beat. It was slow work in the heavy sea that was running. At any moment they were liable to be overwhelmed by the hissing combers. Time and again, and countless times, we watched the boat luff into the big white caps, lose headway, and be flung back like a cork. Johnson was a splendid seaman, and he knew as much about small boats as he did about ships. At the end of an hour and a half he was nearly alongside, standing past our stern on the last leg out, aiming to fetch us on the next leg back. "'So you've changed your mind,' I heard Wolf Larsen mutter, half to himself, half to them, as though they could hear. "'You ought to come aboard, eh? Well, then, just keep her coming.' Hard up with that helm, he commanded Ufti Ufti, the Kanaka, who had in the meantime relieved Lewis at the wheel. Command followed command. 
as the schooner paid off the fore and main sheets were slacked away for fair wind and before the wind we were and leaping when johnson easing his sheet at imminent peril cut across our wake a hundred feet away again wolf larsen laughed at the same time beckoning them with his arm to follow it was evidently his intention to play with them a lesson i took it in lieu of a beating though a dangerous lesson for the frail craft stood in momentary danger of being overwhelmed johnson squared away promptly and ran after us there was nothing else for him to do death stalked everywhere and it was only a matter of time when some one of these many huge seas would fall upon the boat roll over it and pass on tis the fear of death at the hearts of them lewis muttered in my ear as i passed forward to see to taking in the flying jib and staysail oh he'll heave to in a little while and pick them up i answered cheerfully he's bent upon giving them a lesson that's all lewis looked at me shrewdly think so he asked surely i answered don't you i think nothing of but me own skin these days was his answer and tis with wonder i'm filled as to the workin out of things a prettier mess that frisco whiskey got me into and a prettier mess that woman's got you into aft there and it's meself that knows ye for a blitherin fool what do you mean i demanded for having sped his shaft he was turning away what do i mean he cried and it's you that asks me tis not what i mean but what the wolf will mean the wolf i said the wolf if trouble comes will you stand by i asked impulsively for he had voiced my own fear stand by tis fat old lewis i stand by and trouble enough it'll be we're at the beginning of things i'm telling you the bare beginning of things i had not thought you so great a coward i sneered he favored me with a contemptuous stare if i raised never a hand for that poor fool pointing astern to the tiny sail do you think i'm hungering for a broken head for a woman i never laid me eyes upon before this day i turned scornfully away and went aft better get in those topsails mr van waden wolf larsen said as i came on the poop i felt relief at least as far as the two men were concerned it was clear he did not wish to run too far away from them i picked up hope at the thought and put the order swiftly into execution i had scarcely opened my mouth to issue the necessary commands when eager men were springing to halyards and downhauls and others were racing aloft this eagerness on their part was noted by wolf larsen with a grim smile still we increased our lead and when the boat had dropped astern several miles we hove to and waited all eyes watched it coming even wolf larsen's but he was the only unperturbed man aboard lewis gazing fixedly betrayed a trouble in his face he was not quite able to hide the boat drew closer and closer hurling along through the seething green like a thing alive 
lifting and sending and up-tossing across the huge back-breakers or disappearing behind them only to rush into sight again and shoot skyward it seemed impossible that it could continue to live yet with each dizzying sweep it did achieve the impossible a rain squall drove past and out of the flying wet the boat emerged almost upon us hard up there wolf larsen shouted himself springing to the wheel and whirling it over again the ghost sprang away and raced before the wind and for two hours johnson and leech pursued us we hove to and ran away hove to and ran away and ever astern the struggling patch of sail tossed skyward and fell into the rushing valleys it was a quarter of a mile away when a thick squall of rain veiled it from view it never emerged the wind blew the air clear again but no patch of sail broke the troubled surface i thought i saw for an instant the boat's bottom show black in a breaking crest at the best that was all for johnson and leach the travail of existence had ceased the men remained grouped amidships no one had gone below and no one was speaking nor were any looks being exchanged each man seemed stunned deeply contemplative as it were and not quite sure trying to realize just what had taken place wolf larsen gave them little time for thought he at once put the ghost upon her course a course which meant the seal herd and not yokohama harbor but the men were no longer eager as they pulled and hauled and i heard curses amongst them which left their lips smothered and as heavy and lifeless as were they not so was it with the hunters smoke the irrepressible related a story and they descended into the steerage bellowing with laughter as i passed to leeward of the galley on my way aft i was approached by the engineer we had rescued his face was white his lips were trembling good god sir what kind of a craft is this he cried you have eyes you have seen i answered almost brutally what of the pain and fear at my own heart your promise i said to wolf larsen i was not thinking of taking them aboard when i made that promise he answered and anyway you'll agree i've not laid my hands upon them far from it <laughs> far from it he laughed a moment later i made no reply i was incapable of speaking my mind was too confused i must have time to think i knew this woman sleeping even now in this spare cabin was a responsibility which i must consider and the only rational thought that flickered through my mind was that i must do nothing hastily if i were to be any help to her at all End of chapter nineteen chapter twenty of the sea wolf this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 20. The remainder of the day passed uneventfully. 
the young slip of a gale, having wetted our gills, proceeded to moderate. The fourth engineer and the three oilers, after a warm interview with Wolf Larsen, were furnished with outfits from the slop chests, assigned places under the hunters on the various boats and watches on the vessel, and bundled forward into the forecastle. They went protestingly, but their voices were not loud. They were awed by what they had already seen of Wolf Larsen's character. While the tale of woe they speedily heard in the forecastle took the last bit of rebellion out of them. Miss Brewster, we had learned her name from the engineer, slept on and on. At supper I requested the hunters to lower their voices so she was not disturbed, and it was not till next morning that she made her appearance. It had been my intention to have her meal served apart, but Wolf Larsen put down his foot. Who was she that she should be too good for cabin table and cabin society had been his demand. But her coming to the table had something amusing in it. The hunters fell silent as clams. Jack Horner and Smoke alone were unabashed, stealing stealthy glances at her now and again, and even taking part in the conversation. The other four men glued their eyes on their plates and chewed steadily and with thoughtful precision their ears moving and wobbling in time with their jaws like the ears of so many animals. Wolf Larsen had little to say at first, doing no more than reply when he was addressed. Not that he was abashed, far from it. This woman was a new type to him, a different breed from any he had ever known, and he was curious. He studied her, his eyes rarely leaving her face unless to follow the movements of her hands or shoulders. I studied her myself, and though it was I who maintained the conversation, I know that I was a bit shy, not quite self-possessed. His was the perfect poise, the supreme confidence in self which nothing could shake, and he was no more timid of a woman than he was of storm in battle. "'And when shall we arrive at Yokohama?' she asked, turning to him and looking him squarely in the eyes. "'There it was.' the question flat. The jaws stopped working, the ears ceased wobbling, and though eyes remained glued on plates, each man listened greedily for the answer. "'In four months, possibly three, if the season closes early,' Wolf Larsen said. She caught her breath and stammered. "'I—I I thought I was given to understand that Yokohama was only a day's sail away. It—' Here she paused and looked about the table at the circle of unsympathetic faces staring hard at the plates. "'It is not right,' she concluded. "'That is a question you'll have to settle with Mr. Van Waden there,' he replied, nodding to me with a mischievous twinkle. "'Mr. Van Waden is what you may call an authority on such things as rights. Now I, who am only a sailor, would look upon the situation somewhat differently.' It may possibly be your misfortune that you have to remain with us, but it is certainly our good fortune. He regarded her smilingly. Her eyes fell before his gaze, but she lifted them again, and defiantly, to mine. I read the unspoken question there. Was it right? But I had decided that the part I was to play must be a neutral one, so I did not answer. What do you think? she demanded. That it is unfortunate, especially if you have any engagements falling due in the course of the next several months. 
but since you say that you were voyaging to Japan for your health, I can assure you that it will improve no better anywhere than aboard the ghost. I saw her eyes flash with indignation, and this time it was I who dropped mine, while I felt my face flushing under her gaze. It was cowardly, but what else could I do? Mr. Van Waden speaks with the voice of authority, <laughs> Wolf Larsen laughed. I nodded my head, and she, having recovered herself, waited expectantly. Not that he is much to speak of now, Wolf Larsen went on, but he has improved wonderfully. You should have seen him when he came on board. A more scrawny, pitiful specimen of humanity one could hardly conceive. Isn't that so, Kerfoot? Kerfoot, thus directly addressed, was startled into dropping his knife on the floor, though he managed to grunt affirmation. Developed himself by peeling potatoes and washing dishes, at Kerfoot? Again the worthy grunted. Look at him now. True, he is not what you would term muscular, but still he has muscles, which is more than he had when he came aboard. Also, he has legs to stand on. You would not think so to look at him, but he was quite unable to stand alone at first. The hunters were snickering, but she looked at me with a sympathy in her eyes which more than compensated for Wolf Larsen's nastiness. In truth, it had been so long since I had received sympathy that I was softened, and I became then, and gladly, her willing slave. But I was angry with Wolf Larsen. He was challenging my manhood with his slurs, challenging the very legs he claimed to be instrumental in getting for me. I may have learned to stand on my own legs, I retorted, but I have yet to stamp upon others with them. He looked at me insolently. Your education is only half completed, then, he said dryly, and turned to her. We are very hospitable upon the ghost. Mr. Van Waden has discovered that. We do everything to make our guests feel at home. Eh, Mr. Van Waden? Even to the peeling of potatoes and the washing of dishes, I answered, to say nothing to wringing their necks at a very fellowship. I beg of you not to receive false impressions of us from Mr. Van Waden, he interposed with mock anxiety. You will observe, Miss Brewster, that he carries a dirk in his belt. Uh, <clears throat> a most unusual thing for a ship's officer to do. While really very estimable, Mr. Van Waden is sometimes, how shall I say, er, quarrelsome, and harsh measures are necessary. He is quite reasonable and fair in his calm moments, and as he is calm now, we will not deny that only yesterday he threatened my life. I was well-nigh choking, and my eyes were certainly fiery. He drew attention to me. Look at him now. He can scarcely control himself in your presence. He is not accustomed to the presence of ladies, anyway. I shall have to arm myself before I dare go on deck with him. He shook his head sadly, murmuring, Too bad, too bad, while the hunters burst into guffaws of laughter. The deep-sea voices of these men, rumbling and bellowing in the confined space, produced a wild effect. The whole setting was wild, and for the first time, regarding this strange woman, and realizing how incongruous she was in it, I was aware of how much a part of it I was myself. 
I knew these men and their mental processes, was one of them myself, living the seal-hunting life, eating the seal-hunting fare, thinking largely the seal-hunting thoughts. There was for me no strangeness to it, to the rough clothes, the coarse faces, the wild laughter, and the lurching cabin walls and swaying sea-lamps. As I buttered a piece of bread, my eyes chanced to rest upon my hand. The knuckles were skinned and inflamed clear across, the fingers swollen, the nails rimmed with black. I felt the mattress-like growth of beard on my neck, knew that the sleeve of my coat was ripped, the button was missing from the throat of the blue shirt I wore. The dirk mentioned by Wolf Larsen rested in its sheath on my hip. It was very natural that it should be there. How natural I had not imagined until now, when I looked upon it with her eyes, and knew how strange it and all that went with it must appear to her. But she divined the mockery in Wolf Larsen's words, and again favored me with a sympathetic glance. But there was a look of bewilderment also in her eyes. That it was mockery made the situation more puzzling to her. I may be taken off by some passing vessel, perhaps, she suggested. There will be no passing vessels except other sailing schooners, Wolf Larsen made answer. I have no clothes, nothing, she objected. You hardly realize, sir, that I am not a man, or that I am unaccustomed to the vagrant, careless life which you and your men seem to lead. The sooner you get accustomed to it, the better he said. I'll furnish you with cloth, needles, and thread, he added. I hope it will be not too dreadful a hardship for you to make yourself a dress or two. She made a wry pucker with her mouth, as though to advertise her ignorance of dressmaking, that she was frightened and bewildered, and that she was bravely striving to hide it was quite plain to me. I suppose you're like Mr. Van Waden there accustomed to having things done for you. Well, I think doing a few things for yourself will hardly dislocate any joints. By the way, what do you do for a living? She regarded him with amazement, unconcealed. I mean no offense, believe me. People eat, therefore, they must procure the wherewithal. These men here shoot seals in order to live. For the same reason, I sailed the schooner, and Mr. Van Waden, for the present, at any rate, earns his salty grub by assisting me. Now, what do you do? She shrugged her shoulders. Do you feed yourself, or does someone else feed you? I'm afraid someone else has fed me most of my life, she laughed, trying bravely to enter into the spirit of his quizzing, though I could see a terror dawning and growing in her eyes as she watched Wolf Larsen. And I suppose someone else makes the bed for you. I have made beds, she replied. Very often? She shook her head with mock ruefulness. Do you know what they do to poor men in the States who, like you, do not work for a living? I am very ignorant, she pleaded. What do they do to the poor men who are like me? They send them to jail. The crime of not earning a living in their case is called vagrancy. If I were Mr. Van Waden, who harps eternally on questions of right and wrong, I'd ask, by what right do you live when you do nothing to deserve living? But as you are not Mr. Van Waden, I don't have to answer, do I? 
she beamed upon him through her terror-filled eyes and the pathos of it cut me to the heart i must in some way break in and lead the conversation into other channels have you ever earned a dollar by your own labor he demanded certain of her answer a triumphant vindictiveness in his voice yes i have she answered slowly and i could have laughed aloud at his crestfallen visage i remember my father giving me a dollar once when i was a little girl for remaining absolutely quiet for five minutes he smiled indulgently but that was long ago she continued and you would scarcely demand a little girl of nine to earn her own living at present however she said after another slight pause i earn about eighteen hundred dollars a year with one accord all eyes left the plates and settled on her a woman who earned eighteen hundred dollars a year was worth looking at wolf larsen was undisguised in his admiration salary or piecework he asked piecework she answered promptly eighteen hundred he calculated that's a hundred and fifty dollars a month well miss brewster there's nothing small about the ghost consider yourself on salary during the time you remain with us she made no acknowledgment she was too unused as yet to the whims of the man to accept them with equanimity i forgot to inquire he went on suavely as to the nature of your occupation what commodities do you turn out what tools and materials do you require paper and ink she laughed and oh also a typewriter you are maud brewster i said slowly and with certainty almost as though i were charging her with a crime her eyes lifted curiously to mine how do you know aren't you i demanded she acknowledged her identity with a nod it was wolf larsen's turn to be puzzled the name and its magic signaled nothing to him i was proud that it did mean something to me and for the first time in a weary while i was convincingly conscious of a superiority over him i remember writing a review of a thin little volume i had begun carelessly when she interrupted me hugh she cried you are she was now staring at me in wide-eyed wonder i nodded my identity in turn humphrey van waden she concluded then added with a sigh of relief and unaware that she had glanced that relief at wolf larsen i am so glad i remember the review she went on hastily becoming aware of the awkwardness of her remark that too too flattering review not at all i denied valiantly you impeach my sober judgment and make my canons of little worth besides all my brother critics were with me didn't lang include your kiss endured among the four supreme sonnets by women in the english language but you called me the american mrs meynell was it not true i demanded no not that she answered i was hurt we can measure the unknown only by the known 
I replied in my finest academic manner. As a critic, I was compelled to place you. You have now become a yardstick yourself. Seven of your thin little volumes are on my shelves, and there are two thicker volumes, the essays, which you will pardon me saying, and I know not which is flattered more, fully equal your verse. The time is not far distant when some unknown will arise in England and the critics will name her the English Maud Brewster. You are very kind, I am sure, she murmured and the very conventionality of her tones and words with the host of associations it aroused of the old life on the other side of the world gave me a quick thrill rich with remembrance but stinging sharp with homesickness and you were maud brewster i said solemnly gazing across at her and you are humphrey van Weyden she said gazing back at me with equal solemnity and awe how unusual i don't understand we surely are not to expect some wildly romantic sea story from your sober pen no i am not gathering material i assure you was my answer i have neither aptitude nor inclination for fiction tell me why have you always buried yourself in california she next asked it has not been kind of you we of the east have seen too very little of you too little indeed of the dean of american letters the second i bowed too and disclaimed the compliment i nearly met you once in philadelphia some browning affair or other you were to lecture you know my train was four hours late and then we quite forgot where we were leaving Wolf Larsen stranded and silent in the midst of our flood of gossip. The hunters left the table and went on deck, and still we talked. Wolf Larsen alone remained. Suddenly I became aware of him, leaning back from the table and listening curiously to our alien speech of a world he did not know. I broke short off in the middle of a sentence. The present with all its perils and anxieties, rushed upon me with stunning force. It smote Miss Brewster likewise, a vague and nameless terror rushing into her eyes as she regarded Wolf Larsen. He rose to his feet and laughed awkwardly. The sound of it was metallic. <laughs> oh, don't mind me, he said, with his self-depreciatory wave of his hand. I don't count go on go on i pray you but the gates of speech were closed and we too rose from the table and laughed awkwardly end of chapter twenty chapter twenty one of the sea wolf this librivox recording is in the public domain the sea wolf by jack london chapter twenty one the chagrin Wolf Larsen felt from being ignored by Maud Brewster and me in the conversation at table had to express itself in some fashion, and it fell to Thomas Smugridge to be the victim. He had not mended his ways, nor his shirt, though the latter he contended he had changed. The garment itself did not bear out the assertion nor did the accumulations of grease on stove and pot and pan attest a general cleanliness. 
I've given you warning, Cookie, Wolf Larsen said, and now you've got to take your medicine. Muggridge's face turned white under its sooty veneer, and when Wolf Larsen called for a rope and a couple of men, the miserable cockney fled wildly out of the galley and dodged and ducked about the deck with the grinning crew in pursuit. Few things could have been more to their liking than to give him a tow over the side, for to the forecastle he had sent messes and concoctions of the vilest order. Conditions favored the undertaking. The ghost was slipping through the water at no more than three miles an hour, and the sea was fairly calm. But Mugridge had little stomach for a dip in it. Possibly he had seen men towed before. Besides, the water was frightfully cold, and his was anything but a rugged constitution. As usual, the watches below and the hunters turned out for what promised sport. Muggridge seemed to be in rabid fear of the water, and he exhibited a nimbleness and speed we did not dream he possessed. Cornered in the right angle of the poop and galley, he sprang like a cat to the top of the cabin and ran aft. But, his pursuers forestalling him, he doubled back across the cabin, passed over the galley, and gained the deck by means of the steerage scuttle. Straight forward he raced, the boat-puller Harrison at his heels, and gaining on him. But Mugridge, leaping suddenly, caught the jib-boom lift. It happened in an instant, holding his weight by his arms, and in mid-air doubling his body at the hips, he let fly with both feet. The oncoming Harrison caught the kick squarely in the pit of the stomach, groaned involuntarily, and doubled up and sank backward to the deck. Hand-clapping and roars of laughter from the hunters greeted the exploit, while Mugridge, eluding half of his pursuers at the foremast, ran aft and threw the remainder like a runner on the football field. Straight aft he held to the poop and along the poop to the stern. So great was his speed that as he curved past the corner of the cabin he slipped and fell. Nilsson was standing at the wheel, and the cockney's hurtling body struck his legs. Both went down together, but Mugridge alone arose. By some freak of pressures, his frail body had snapped the strong man's leg like a pipe stem. Parsons took the wheel, and the pursuit continued. Round and round the decks they went, Mugridge sick with fear the sailors hallooing and shouting directions to one another, and the hunters bellowing encouragement and laughter. Mugridge went down on the forehatch under three men, but he emerged from the mass like an eel bleeding at the mouth, the offending shirt ripped into tatters, and sprang for the main rigging. Up he went, clear up beyond the ratlines, to the very masthead. Half a dozen sailors swarmed to the cross-trees after him, where they clustered and waited, while two of their number, Ufti Ufti and Black, who was Latimer's boat-steerer, continued up the thin steel stays, lifting their bodies higher and higher by means of their arms. It was a perilous undertaking, for, at a height of over a hundred feet from the deck, holding on by their hands, they were not in the best of positions to protect themselves from Mugridge's feet. And Mugridge kicked savagely, 
till the kanaka hanging on with one hand seized the cockney's foot with the other black duplicated the performance a moment later with the other foot then the three writhed together in a swaying tangle struggling sliding and falling into the arms of their mates on the cross trees the aerial battle was over and thomas mugridge whining and gibbering his mouth flecked with bloody foam was brought down to deck wolf larsen rove a bowlin in a piece of rope and slipped it under his shoulders then he was carried aft and flung into the sea forty fifty sixty feet of line ran out when wolf larsen cried "Bidet!" oofty oofty took a turn on the bit the rope tautened and the ghost lunging onward jerked the cook to the surface it was a pitiful spectacle though he could not drown and was nine-lived in addition he was suffering all the agonies of half-drowning the ghost was going very slowly and when her stern lifted on a wave and she slipped forward she pulled the wretch to the surface and gave him a moment in which to breathe but between each lift the stern fell and while the bow lazily climbed the next wave the line slacked and he sank beneath i had forgotten the existence of maud brewster and i remembered her with a start as she stepped lightly beside me it was her first time on deck since she had come aboard a dead silence greeted her appearance what is the cause of the merriment she asked ask captain larsen i answered composedly and coldly though inwardly my blood was boiling at the thought that she should be witness to such brutality she took my advice and was turning to put it into execution when her eyes lighted on oofty oofty immediately before her his body instinct with alertness and grace as he held the turn of the rope are you fishing she asked him he made no reply his eyes fixed intently on the sea astern suddenly flashed shark ho sir he cried heave in lively all hands tell on wolf larsen shouted springing himself to the rope in advance of the quickest mugridge had heard the kanaka's warning cry and was screaming madly i could see a black fin cutting the water and making for him with greater swiftness than he was being pulled aboard it was an even toss whether the shark or we would get him and it was a matter of moments when mugridge was directly beneath us the stern descended the slope of a passing wave thus giving the advantage to the shark the fin disappeared the belly flashed white in swift upward rush almost equally swift but not quite was wolf larsen he threw his strength into one tremendous jerk the cockney's body left the water so did part of the sharks he drew up his legs and the man-eater seemed no more than barely to touch one foot sinking back into the water with a splash but at the moment of contact thomas mugridge cried out then he came in like a fresh-caught fish on a line clearing the rail generously and striking the deck in a heap on hands and knees and rolling over but a fountain of blood was gushing forth the right foot was missing amputated neatly at the ankle i looked instantly to maud brewster her face was white 
her eyes dilated with horror. She was gazing not at Thomas Mugridge, but at Wolf Larsen, and he was aware of it, for he said with one of his short laughs, <laughs> Man play, Miss Brewster. Somewhat rougher, I warrant, than what you have been used to, but still man play. The shark was not in the reckoning. But at this juncture, Mugridge, who had lifted his head and ascertained the extent of his loss, floundered over on the deck and buried his teeth in Wolf Larsen's leg. Wolf Larsen stooped coolly to the cockney and pressed with thumb and finger at the rear of the jaws and below the ears. The jaws opened with reluctance and Wolf Larsen stepped free. As I was saying, he went on, as though nothing unwanted had happened. The shark was not in a reckoning. It was, <clears throat> shall we say, providence. She gave no sign that she had heard, though the expression of her eyes changed to one of inexpressible loathing as she started to turn away. She no more than started, for she swayed and tottered, and reached her hand out to mine. I caught her in time to save her from falling and help her to a seat on the cabin. I thought she might faint outright, but she controlled herself. "'Will you get a tourniquet, Mr. Van Weyden?' Wolf Larsen called to me. I hesitated. Her lips moved, and though they formed no words, she commanded me with her eyes, plainly as speech, to go to the help of the unfortunate man. "'Please,' she managed to whisper, and I could but obey. By now I had developed such skill at surgery that Wolf Larsen, with a few words of advice, left me to my task with a couple of sailors for assistance. For his task he elected a vengeance on the shark. A heavy swivel hook, baited with fat salt pork, was dropped overside, and by the time I had compressed the severed veins and arteries, the sailors were singing and heaving in the offending monster. I did not see it myself, but my assistants, first one and then the other, deserted me for a few moments to run amidships and look at what was going on. The shark, a sixteen-footer, was hoisted up against the main rigging. Its jaws were pried apart to their greatest extension, and a stout stake, sharpened at both ends, was so inserted that when the prize were removed the spread jaws were fixed upon it. This accomplished, the hook was cut out. The shark dropped back into the sea, helpless, yet with its full strength, doomed to lingering starvation, a living death less meat for it than for the man who devised the punishment. End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 of The Sea Wolf this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 22 I knew what it was as she came toward me. For ten minutes I had watched her talking earnestly with the engineer, and now, with a sign for silence, I drew her out of earshot of the helmsman. Her face was white and set. Her large eyes, larger than usual, what of the purpose in them, looked penetratingly into mine. I felt rather timid and apprehensive, for she had come to search Humphrey Van Waden's soul, 
and Humphrey Van Waden had nothing of which to be particularly proud since his advent on the ghost. We walked to the break of the poop, where she turned and faced me. I glanced around to see that no one was within hearing distance. "'What is it?' I asked gently, but the expression of determination on her face did not relax. "'I can readily understand,' she began, "'that this morning's affair was largely an accident. "'But I have been talking with Mr. Haskins. "'He tells me that the day we were rescued, "'even while I was in the cabin, two men were drowned, "'deliberately drowned, murdered?' "'There was a query in her voice, "'and she faced me accusingly, "'as though I were guilty of the deed, "'or at least a party to it. "'The information is quite correct,' I answered. "'The two men were murdered.' "'And you permitted it?' she cried. "'I was unable to prevent it,' is a better way of phrasing it, I replied, still gently. "'But you tried to prevent it?' There was an emphasis on the tried, and a pleading little note in her voice. "'Oh, but you didn't,' she hurried on, divining my answer. "'But why didn't you?' I shrugged my shoulders. "'You must remember, Miss Brewster,' that you are a new inhabitant of this little world, and that you do not yet understand the laws which operate within it. You bring with you certain fine conceptions of humanity, manhood, conduct, and such things, but here you will find them misconceptions. I have found it so, I added, with an involuntary sigh. She shook her head incredulously. What would you advise, then? I asked. "'that I should take a knife or a gun or an axe and kill this man?' "'She half started back. "'No, not that. "'Then what should I do? Kill myself?' "'You speak in purely materialistic terms,' she objected. "'There is such a thing as moral courage, "'and moral courage is never without effect.' "'Ah,' I smiled, "'you advise me to kill neither him nor myself, "'but to let him kill me.' I held up my hand as she was about to speak, for moral courage is a worthless asset on this little floating world. Leech, one of the men who were murdered, had moral courage to an unusual degree. So had the other man, Johnson. Not only did it not stand them in good stead, but it destroyed them. And so with me, if I should exercise what little moral courage I may possess. You must understand, Miss Brewster, and understand clearly that this man is a monster. He is without conscience. Nothing is sacred to him. Nothing is too terrible for him to do. It was due to his whim that I was detained aboard in the first place. It is due to his whim that I am still alive. I do nothing, can do nothing, because I am a slave to this monster, as you are now a slave to him. Because I desire to live as you will desire to live because I cannot fight and overcome him, just as you will not be able to fight and overcome him. She waited for me to go on. What remains? Mine is the role of the weak. I remain silent and suffer ignominy, as you will remain silent and suffer ignominy. And it is well. It is the best we can do if we wish to live. The battle is not always to the strong. We have not the strength with which to fight this man. We must dissimulate and win, if win we can, by craft. 
If you will be advised by me, this is what you will do. I know my position is perilous, and I may say frankly that yours is even more perilous. We must stand together without appearing to do so, in secret alliance. I shall not be able to side with you openly, and, no matter what indignities may be put upon me, you are to remain likewise silent. We must provoke no scenes with this man, nor cross his will, and we must keep smiling faces and be friendly with him, no matter how repulsive it may be. She brushed her hand across her forehead in a puzzled way, saying, Still, I do not understand. You must do as I say, I interrupted authoritatively, for I saw Wolf Larsen's gaze wandering toward us from where he paced up and down with Latimer amidships. Do as I say, and ere long you will find I am right. What shall I do then? she asked detecting the anxious glance i had shot at the object of our conversation and impressed i flatter myself with the earnestness of my manner dispense with all the moral courage you can i said briskly don't arouse this man's animosity be quite friendly with him talk with him discuss literature and art with him he is fond of such things you will find him an interested listener and no fool and for your own sake try to avoid witnessing as much as you can the brutalities of the ship it will make it easier for you to act your part i am to lie she said in steady rebellious tones by speech and action to lie wolf larsen had separated from latimer and was coming toward us i was desperate please please understand me i said hurriedly lowering my voice all your experience of men and things is worthless here you must begin over again i know i can see it you have among other ways been used to managing people with your eyes letting your moral courage speak out through them as it were you have already managed me with your eyes commanded me with them but don't try it on wolf larsen you could as easily control a lion while he would make a mock of you he would I have always been proud of the fact that I discovered him, I said, turning the conversation as Wolf Larsen stepped on the poop and joined us. The editors were afraid of him, and the publishers would have none of him. But I knew, and his genius and my judgment were vindicated when he made that magnificent hit with his forge. And it was a newspaper poem, she said glibly. It did happen to see the light in a newspaper, I replied, but not because the magazine editors had been denied a glimpse at it. We were talking of Harris, I said to Wolf Larsen. Oh, yes, he acknowledged. I remember the forge, filled with pretty sentiments and an almighty faith in human illusions. By the way, Mr. Van Weyden, you'd better look in on Cookie. He's complaining and restless. Thus I was bluntly dismissed from the poop, only to find Mugridge sleeping soundly from the morphine I had given him. I made no haste to return on deck, and when I did, I was gratified to see Miss Brewster in animated conversation with Wolf Larsen. As I say, the sight gratified me. She was following my advice, and yet I was conscious of a slight shock or hurt in that she was able to do the thing I had begged her to do, and which she had notably disliked. 
End of chapter 22.